The Take on flicks.com.au is brought to you by, of course, Australia's number one movie site, flicks.com.au. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for supporting all along as we went on our journey through The Mandalorian. We have a massive show for you this week. We're going to be doing a duel of takes adjudicating over what's better, 1917 or Chris Nolan's Dunkirk. Pretty exciting times. Two huge films. One is in the topic of conversation and contending for the Best Academy Award Oscar. But before we kick that off, my bogan Beyonce is going to come on the show to talk to me all about Guy Ritchie's incredible return to form, the awesome, the gentleman. But first, let's go to our theme. Welcome to The Take and my cockney Cleopatra, Maria Lewis, is back on the show in 2020. It might just be me because I did have a stroke once, but I feel like the theme song got 60% longer <laughs> since the last time I came on. It did. Can I imagine that? that there is, was like an extra few riffs in there. There's a couple of riffs in there. We left the long version in because okay, it great. has been a long time between shows and the show theme for the last times that people have been hearing it is all Mandalorian all the time. So now we're back. We're back to this belter riff, uh, a, a riff on Powderfinger's belter, the theme to two hands. And, uh, and speaking of ripping freaking awesome gangster yarns, the gentleman well, is the best movie we've seen this year and I couldn't wait to talk to you about it on the show. I'm really glad to hear you say that because I definitely felt that it was the best movie I've seen so far in 2020, but I understand that sometimes I'm in the minority when it comes to the things I feel passionate about, Vampire Academy, Deep Blue Sea, The Relic, many, many other things, um, Longshot being my favorite movie of 2019, <laughs> but yeah, I loved it. I loved The Gentleman so much. I saw it twice in 24 hours and paid to see it both times, I should say, which is a key point of difference because a lot of times when we talk about movies, actually most times when we talk about movies in this kind of setting, we have seen the movie for free. We've seen it at a screening or a preview night or whatever. And for some god awful reason, when they were doing, they decided to do preview screenings for The Gentleman uh, two days before Christmas at... <laughs> 8 a.m. in the morning. 8 a.m. 8 a.m. On a fucking Tuesday, <laughs> which is a terrible fucking idea. It's possibly the dumbest idea any any publicity department has come up with. So, unsurprisingly, no one fucking went. Um, and so, when it came out on New Year's Day, I was like, you know what? I'm going to go see this at 10.15 in the morning. It was a, at the Cinema Nova in Melbourne. It was full of old people. Uh, a couple next to me were fingering enthusiastically throughout the duration of the film. <laughs> Bumping my fucking elbow nonstop. I was so into the movie that I didn't storm out. And then I went and saw it again within 24 hours at the next 10, 15 a.m. session. I actually walked out of the cinema and I was like, 
you know what, I kind of want to go back in immediately. But then I was like, oh, no, those people still might be seen growing in there. I'm going to wait. I'll cool <laughs> off and give it like 24 hours and then see if I still feel as passionately about it as I did. There's, the def- first time. there's definitely an essential fingering cooling off period that is there. But if folks don't know about the film, basically what it is, there is a marijuana drug kingpin in England played by Matthew McConaughey. Um, and, and he's... Uh, he, who he's, else? Who else would you want to play that part? Who else? Who else? Um, and he's about to retire. He's had enough, uh, you know, heavy as the head that wears the crown. He wants to get out. He has some international buyers sniffing around. He's also got some local parties who've basically gotten wind of his impending retirement and are starting to throw out their own offers and uh, do a little bit of calculated displacement. And basically what happens is a few people start to hear the story that he is out and things start to get a little bit messy. And how this is beautifully told in with such swagger and awesome confidence is that Guy Ritchie enlists um, a, a buzzard, a, a dirty bird of an investigative reporter played by Hugh Grant. Um, Hugh Grant may be never better. This and Paddington 2 um, are going tit for tat as his greatest acting performances in his entire career. Recounting to Charlie Hunnam, who is Matthew McConaughey's right hand, basically, look, I have a $150,000 offer to give this to a tabloid newspaper with a sleazy editor um, played by Eddie Marsden, or... I can recount the tale to you, and if all of this is correct and I've investigated all this stuff, then you guys can pay me 20 million pounds and I will bury it. And it is just this wonderful tale that's told like a yarn you would hear in a pub. It has style. It's got class. People are just dripping with great outfits. And the the characters are so goddamn memorable on every level that – Maria saw it at this uh, infamous fingering screening at the Nova in, uh, in, in in January 1st of this year, which I don't really know what kind of omen that is. But one of the things she did was immediately get out and say, have you seen the gentleman? I get an all caps aggressive text. Have you seen the gentleman? And at that time I didn't and I didn't have a chance. And she said, you must call me immediately when you do see it. And And I kept my promise. And I was just so, so thrilled at every level of this movie. It is just, it is so much fun. It is so, so masterly put together and it's just deeply, deeply entertaining and it's so rare that, you know, and again, I paid for this one too. It's it's rare that when you go and it's and it's, I think it's our job in, in some respects as film critics to make sure that we're very purposeful with our recommendations because a lot of folks have to pay a lot of cash, especially if you take friends or family to the movies. Like, is this worth your money? Um, and I can unequivocally say that The Gentleman is worth your money and maybe again. Like the ne- in, in following weeks, people have said, Blake was the best thing you've seen this year, you know, and, and I've reviewed a couple of movies this year so far, you know, one of them being Bad Boys for Life. And if people are like, hey, would you recommend? I'd put, no, I wouldn't. I would recommend totally going back to see The Gentleman for a second time before going to see Bad Boys for Life. Yeah, look, number one, aggressive all caps texts are the only kind that I send <laughs> you specifically. <laughs> And number two, I was not dumb enough to go to the Bad Boys 3 screening because I was RSVP'd yes, and I was sitting there like... I RSVP'd yes, but my heart said no. My heart said no because the bombshell screening was the night before, and I was really interested to to see that and talk about that. And then I'd RSVP'd yes to Bad Boys 3, and it was the night of, and I was on my way there, and I was like, hang on, I don't like Bad Boys 1. And I fucking hate bad boys too. (laughs) Why am I going? I'm sorry. I just like, I know the clock is ticking on my own mortality 
And I don't have to go and see a movie that I don't think I'm going to enjoy. Specifically, I don't want to go and see something I don't think I'm going to enjoy. Life's too short. I don't want to write a snarky review or a snarky commentary piece for the sake of it. And The Gentleman, I think one of the things that made me so excited and one of the reasons I wanted you to see it so badly was because, like a lot of us out there, we're really big fans, fans of Guy Ritchie yes. and what he does and his whole brand. And I think a lot of us felt that he'd kind of lost his way post-rock and roller, you know. Obviously, there was also fucking swept away and shit, the crappy Madonna on a beach movie, but like, let's talk about But you got lots of stuff, right? Really enjoyable. You got snacks, also great. You've got rock and roller, which I had a lot of fun with. Very fun. Uh, there's a, it's very fun. There's a lot of flaws. It's definitely not as good as his earlier stuff, but there's promise and it's enjoyable and there's man, so much good shit. Man from Uncle, outstanding. A lot of man fun. Man from Uncle, great. Aladdin, nah, fuck off. And King Arthur, kind of enjoyable in a big, dumb way. The Sherlock Holmes movies were what they were. Yeah. They're, like, perfectly fun. But to be honest, not something I've ever, like, revisited willingly. Whereas The Gentleman, one of the things that's so great about it is it felt like somebody returning to form. Not that Man for Uncle. I think Man for Uncle, honestly, is one of his best movies. I rewatched the shit out of that motherfucker. It's mm. so good. Mm. Um, so many turtlenecks. So many jawbones, it's just the best. <laughs> but the gentleman was somebody excelling at the very thing that we'd fallen in love with them for doing in the first place. It was like the realization of somebody's central ideas. He plays with narrative structure in a way. Through the through the Hugh Grant character, he plays with the unreliable narrator vessel so interestingly, but he also plays with the conventions of storytelling. He talks about film and he talks about perspective and he talks about screen ratio. And this whole film is like a love letter to the movies that he loves, as well as the ones that are important but kind of boring, like the conversation. And <laughs> Which I I'm seeing in a couple of nights, by the way, in Sydney. <laughs> great. Oh, you, your mistake. Um, <laughs> but that is something that's really enjoyable to watch as somebody who has been a fan of his early work for a while, but it just felt like a very fully realized vision and it felt like I was looking at a lot of the reviews for the movie because it's currently his best reviewed movie ever which mm. is wild to think that but uh, some of the criticisms of the film had been about it feeling like he was just staying in his lane and doing the same old thing the same old tired comfortable thing and that he had never sort of you know grown up hadn't done anything new and I couldn't have disagreed with that more because there's these elements to the film, in particular through the inclusion of grime rapper Funky Malone, who's part of this like little gang of aspirational boxers slash thugs that Colin Farrell, who gives the other best performance in the movie, fucking unbelievable. He's so good. He's never been better. They are included in this movie, kind of representing the old, like they are the juxtaposition with the old school. They represent the new school, and then there's the classic Guy Ritchie guys who represents the old school and they literally have a fight and there's a mutual understanding and respect between the two of them and <laughs> even including fight porn and the kind of like rhyme rapping and the subtle product placement of gritty pubs and gritty fucking whiskey <laughs> which is Guy Ritchie's brand and chain of pubs and booze and just stuff like that. It was, um, it was really enjoyable. I loved it so much and I've recommended it to a few people actually have gone out and seen it and had a really good time as well which is um really it's just the best i just love it so much it was the kind of movie where i left with a massive smile on my face 
and I wasn't even the one who got fingered. So that's testament to how good this movie is. <laughs> well, apart, I'm not going to let you go out with that as the pull quote for the movie, but what I will say, firstly, Maria Lewis, thank you. I wouldn't ever do an episode returning to the take without you. So thank you so much for being a part of the show again. And it was actually Maria who coined the best encapsulation of this movie that I've heard so far, which is this is Guy Ritchie's The Princess Bride, and she totally nailed it. And it's just such a scream. So there are going to be a lot of movies, a lot of award season movies. There is a stack of things that is out there vying for your attention right now. And I just want to unequivocally say The Gentleman is the highest level of recommendation I give you on a pure entertainment value, but not just that. It's storytelling, it's confidence, it's swagger, and it's a massive return to form. baby. Those performances are great. And keep in mind, this is a good time of year for movies. All of the award season movies are hitting in cinemas right now. There's a lot of good shit and a lot of good options out there. So the fact that we're hyping this one up, I think, uh, is, is an example of how good it actually is. Maria Lewis, thank you so much for being part of the take in 2020. Bye. Bye. So as promised, it is the jewel of takes. Our first go at pitting two movies against one another. One is an absolute awards juggernaut by an infamous and Oscar-nominated and winning director, Sam Mendes. And the other was an awards juggernaut and was directed by an Academy Award-nominated director, Chris Nolan, and that is Dunkirk. One of these movies looks like it's going to win Best Picture. The other was in the conversation and was critically lauded and everywhere that anyone had saw it as an infinitely rewatchable movie was getting all this play. And now it just seems that it's disappeared off the map. This single take phenomenon uh, is, is dwarfing the conversation. So I thought, look, what better than to get two men to argue this out for us, to be master debaters for us. One of them wrote the absolutely best single best piece of criticism that is written on Dunkirk he is the legendary Chicago based now film critic on sabbatical Brendan Hodges Brendan welcome back to the take hi very happy to be here and the other is my beautiful cantankerous Western Australian born friend um, whose Facebook is really just the most toxic and wonderful place you've ever seen that is Travis Johnson <laughs> film flicks.com.au alumni Trav welcome to the take again my friend thanks for having me man legend so here are the rules my friends you have five minutes each to state your case about each of these movies and i will allow as the judge and adjudicator of this jewel of takes several objections and they better be good objections at that Um, i don't want any low blows unless they're good Uh, and then i will allow you guys a summary point and i will be adjudicating this entire thing i will be the referee There will be judgment at the end. I will decide which one of you wins this jewel of takes. Um, And, uh, and, you know, two men enter, one man leave this week. So, Travis, the honour is with you first, my friend. 1917, it is the juggernaut that is happening right now. Tell me why this movie is better than Chris Nolan's Dunkirk. brother in the second battalion yes sir is he alive and with your help i'd like to keep it that way but they're walking into a trap 
Your orders are to deliver a message calling off tomorrow morning's attack. If you don't, we will lose 1,600 men. Your brother among them. Okay, well, if we take as read as true, uh, Truffaut's axiom that there's no such thing as an anti-war film, both both of these films function as, as acts of propaganda. So they are nationalist, they are imperialist, um, they are somewhat colonialist, um, and they are effectively designed to, to get dumb young men to sign up to wear a uniform and get shot at or shoot at brown people which is sort of our that's how we do things these days and that's how we did back in world war oh, not so much world war ii but very much in world war one uh, particularly for the australian experience because we uh, were up against turkey for a lot of that which is a foundational part of our national myth so if you look at it that way 1917 is really interesting because it's effectively a rail shooter turned into a movie the single take uh kind of gimmick that uh that Mendes and, and the great cinematographer Roger Deakins came up with effectively puts uh, the viewer on a rail traveling through uh, multiple environments uh, across the, the front as our characters pursue their, well, basically they've turned the last 10 minutes of Gallipoli into a feature length film, which is some kind of achievement, I guess. Um, and it takes them through this sort of, uh, sort of battlefront experience, right? Uh, so it is uh, a war movie for Generation Xbox, which I find really interesting. Okay, it's largely bereft of character. Um, you're basically invited to put yourself very much in the shoes of uh, the protagonist has presented and given very little to go along with. So it's there to set up like easy points of identification. Um, and it's designed to make the viewer put themselves in that situation. Now you could argue, you could argue, um, and people frequently do that. It shows and movies like this show the horrors of war, you know, the sacrifice, the, the carnage, so on and so forth. You know, we get Benny Cumberbatch coming back coming up again going oh yes war is hell and tomorrow we'll have to do the whole thing again and it's just <laughs> dreadful but it glorifies sacrifice okay it, it elevates sacrifice sacrifice becomes ennobled um and which is really fucking interesting uh for a world war one film because that is a fairly i, I don't want to say unjust war but it was a war for largely imperial reasons. It was a lot of old 19th century powers sort of jostling for like position at the dawn of the 20th century. Um, and I could be here for hours talking about that, so I won't. <laughs> um, and we have seen the rise of a lot of British war films recently, which are all invoking like, you know, British stoicism, the stiff upper lip, keep calm and carry on, the old blitz spirit. So if you take as read that the aim of the film is to do that, to make that kind of stoicism and austerity and self-sacrifice appealing to a new generation, then 1917 is a masterpiece of propaganda. Like it's Lenny Riffin style little shit because it takes the language of video games. And, you know, we had, uh, what was it? Battlefront one a few years ago, which was the world war one first person shooter, which on first take I thought was fucking appalling, just, you know, morally outrageous. And I was like, Oh no, this makes sense because you're contextualizing this kind of history, this kind of spirit and this kind of nationalism. That's very important for a generation raised on on twitch gaming and 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 you know first person shooters and this has extended that language to to the cinema to the theatrical experience so simply as a piece of propaganda which i, I firmly believe it is 1917 is an absolute triumph not necessarily of the will but certainly of cinema wow not a single objection a triumph of propaganda and not the will and uh, and more Lenny, multiple Lenny Riefenstahl style references in there. 
He's stated a case. It's a masterpiece. This propaganda has whipped Oscar and Academy voters into a frenzy. Brendan, your response. Well, automatically, uh, what I think about here is the fact that uh, this is a movie that if indeed it's designed to reorient a new generation to this mantra of self-sacrifice, by God, it could at least do a job of that where the, the there's a character to invest in to think that's a worthy cause. And I would even say that there's not a single real sacrifice in the whole movie, uh, at least a willful one. Um, the, the characters put themselves in danger, but the character who winds up dying does it out of naivety and kind of a, a he's green. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's constantly made fun of by uh, George McKay's showfield that he's just a, he's a noob, to put it in the parlance <laughs> of gaming. He's a noob <laughs> in the war zone. And so it's not as though he's glorified in sacrificing himself for his brother in the cause. It's more like he does it out of ignorance and stupidity. I think the movie is laced with a sort of cynicism. Um, and I'll go into what I think is kind of wrong with the movie in a bit. But one of those things, I think it, it's not really about uh, anything beyond a kind of half-hearted, loose cynicism. And I think that's embodied here. Uh, Showfield kind of carries on mostly by a, well, I've got to do it now for my friend. It's kind of like saving Private Ryan at the end, right? Earn this. <laughs> and uh, it, and ultimately, he just kind of does it because at that point, I don't know if there's much else for him to do, quite frankly. It, it's kind of a farce. What's interesting is that I agree with a lot of what you're saying, but I've taken a completely different read on it. Because, yeah, that character who does die is the bunny. He's there to engender sympathy. And Schofield is the character we're invited to identify with. And it's him taking on the duty, the burden of the mission that they have to go on. Uh, that is the point of the film. In terms of having characters to identify with, it's been a while since I've watched it, but I seem to recall writing in my review of Dunkirk that the only character whose name I remembered was... Uh, the captain at the end waiting on the beach, uh, fucking Kenneth Branagh. Uh, <laughs> I don't think. I, 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 don't I just think... want to correct you there, Trav. I don't think his name was fucking Kenneth Branagh. I've got the IMDb. <laughs> I think somewhere on one of my screens here. I yeah, just, oh, I just, just for the purpose of being correct, not fucking Kenneth Branagh. Just, just for clarity. Okay. <laughs> Anyway, so if you want to talk about anonymous uh, characters, basically you know, playing pieces being moved around on the board by a meticulous and, and, and craft-orientated director with little interest in, in actual like human emotions, then I, I think that Dunkirk stands as a prime example of that. Everyone's just there so that uh, your boy can basically make a love letter to the, uh, to the Spitfire, and I'm all for that. I like film as a technical exercise myself. Um, I don't think either of the films actually work as emotional um, or uh, psychologically interesting narratives. I don't really care about any of the characters in any of them, but I am interested in the in the cultural myths that they enact, um, which goes back to my initial argument. I'm going to count. I'm going to count. Ding ding on 1917, Brendan. I need you to give me. I need you to argue for. Dunkirk here. I need you to give me your take on Dunkirk because uh, you know we've 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 heard you debate the the merits both of you on 1917, and I want to really kick you off and fire you up with Chris Nolan as pure technician with no human emotion and uh, unidentifiable characters in Dunkirk. The enemy tanks have stopped. Why? Why waste precious tanks when they can pick us off from the air like fish in a barrel?
There are 400,000 men on this beach. Well, we'll, we'll see about that. Um, uh, all right. So the, to, to begin with, I want to point out that I do think 1917 and Dunkirk do very similar things at times. And to Travis's point, I think that's right. But the main thing I want to talk about is the way that they push the characters into danger. And the way that they do this is very different. Uh, Dunkirk is a movie where essentially every 20 minutes or so, characters are put into these dangerous scenarios. And inside these scenarios, they react so much of Dunkirk is about the viewer observing behavior. And I think this is why the fact that these characters are somewhat anonymous is a very different point of uh, debate than the way it's done in 1917. Because in Dunkirk, we see kind of a portrait of many different types of behavior throughout the film. And some of that behavior might be close to how we would react and some of it isn't. Um, I mean, some of those characters do react heroically. Uh, Tom Hardy's farrier, who's basically Batman in <laughs> Dunkirk. He's basically this hero who's self-sacrificing. I mean, him landing the Spitfire at the end is kind of very similar to the ending of The Dark Knight Rises, but we, we don't have to get into that. Um, there's also characters who react, uh, I wouldn't say selfishly, but they react out of self-interest. And kind of it's a movie about moral relativism, and the moral relativism of survival and how culpable somebody is when you put your life above the line of, of, for the people around you and when that's the only way to survive. And it goes, how would you handle that as a random soldier? Would you be more like Killian Murphy's shivering soldier who tried to turn the boat uh, away from Dunkirk where he wouldn't be rescuing people? In which case, if, if uh, Killian Murphy's shivering soldier had his way, all the other main characters of the movie on the beach would be dead. And, uh, I, but are, are you more like Farrier, the self-sacrificing Batman figure? I think we're all hoping we're more like Farrier, but to be honest, I don't think we are. <laughs> I'm probably more like the Shivering Soldier. And I say that because it has this great moral complexity to it. It's not as much about what any singular person is doing and how they're reacting. You have a spectrum of behavior. And I think that's the big failure of 1917 because the whole movie the characters just get up and go and they're essentially the luckiest two sons of bitches in the history of world <laughs> War One. Um, there, there's the whole booby trap sequence that's right out of raiders of the lost ark or something and they walk out pretty much fine they're constantly shot at and the bullets are always like just an inch or a foot away from hitting them they're basically being shot at by star wars stormtroopers <laughs> it, it, it's completely absurd and then there's the plane right out of north by northwest that comes and almost crashes into them and all that and so you have all it's a weirdly like movie movie world war one movie you know what i mean and they survive every single thing that could kind of happen to them and it has to keep on going and why does it have to keep on going because it's in a single take <laughs> it can't cut and in dunkirk there's all this space for the characters to make mistakes for behavior to motivate story for behavior to motivate craft and i'll give a great example the cross-cutting of the different timelines shows you killian murphy's shivering soldier acting more heroically than acting more out of self-preservation 
So you, the, the form matches the content. In 1917, behavior doesn't motivate anything. It's the camera. <laughs> it's the fact that this stupid thing can't cut. And now I have to talk about De Palma for a second. That's a weird comparison. We got to talk about blowout. We got to talk about body double. Because in De Palma, he luxuriates in the artifice of cinema. You know, he, he gives you these garish uh, camera moves, these cuts, these split screens. And in uh, 1917, it's similarly embracing the artifice. But I don't think it knows that it is. Because <laughs> in De Palma, you're constantly aware that you're watching a movie. He, he wants you to love the fact that this is a movie and you're aware it's a movie while you're watching it. But this is trying to be like virtual reality with the goggles off, as Nolan described Dunkirk. But instead, it's going for kind of a similar thing, but these perilous situations, the characters constantly avoid danger so one thing can kind of lead to the next, like the way that the, 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 they happen to get into a platoon with a car, then the car breaks down, then it goes to a bridge, oh no, the bridge is down. Every moment is curated so that this continuous shot can keep going, and this is never worse than the end of the movie when he happens to jump into a river, and what do you know? He winds up by the Devons. He winds up exactly where he's supposed to go the whole time. The whole thing is a farce. Travis, your response. The whole thing is well, a farce. I just want to jump back to Dunkirk for a second and say that I do agree with you. It is actually thematically weak and murky and badly constructed. And I think it's brave of you to admit that in a context <laughs> like this. But put the camera back to 1917 for a second. Everything you think is a bug is a feature because this film is designed to gamify the experience of conflict. So the artificial nature of the, the narrative, uh, that's deliberate. Uh, the bullets missing you know, by a foot, that's deliberate. The close calls, that's deliberate. The callbacks to other pieces of cinema like North by Northwest, absolutely deliberate. Uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, totally. Because it is making war and adventure again that is the point that is the point of the film but is, is that a good point is this what it should <laughs> well be that's really? that's a whole different <laughs> I but i think that's idea, the, the topic of the day here because 1917 is promoting something that is kind of dangerous by your own definition it's doing the opposite of what it should be doing no well, i think dunkirk is doing the same thing so if you're going to condemn 1917 for this you must condemn Dunkirk for the same crime because they're doing exactly the same thing. They are lionizing well, you and, and apologizing, I mean, participating in in conflict and self sacrifice. But Dunkirk has a willingness to portray most of its cast of characters in a negative light. It shows that behavior is ugly and terrifying, and the characters are almost in a, a kind of a pressure cooker situation where half the choices they make are the wrong ones. Exactly. And, so Dunkirk is bad at its job. And 1970 <laughs> is good at it. No, because in one case, it's purposeful, my friend. Uh, I'll give you a great example. Um, in, in Dunkirk, when they're inside that boat on, uh, on the beach, and they're making that decision whether or not to kick um, the quote-unquote frog out of the boat. All the characters are making this choice. Oh, do we kill an innocent man for the rest of our... And we have to go, well, should they? And there's this kangaroo court element of it. There's a moral complexity that is purposeful there. Uh, in 1917, it, it's not like that. The, the closest thing you have to moral ambiguity, uh, moral ambiguity in 1917 is uh, Colonel McKenzie at the end, who's kind of like a quasi-Colonel Kurtz, who is like, oh, I'm running amok in the war zone. But guess what? 
he changed his mind after three uh, questions. He goes, oh, no, 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 please look at this. Look at this. Look at this. The third time they say, look at the stupid letter, he goes, okay. And he calls it <laughs> off. That's the closest thing you have to any amb- ambiguity in the whole movie. Exactly. Press X to convince Benny Cumberbatch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Gentlemen, I'm going to allow – this has been a, a delightful um, jewel of takes, and I'm, I especially love when you started yelling at each other towards the end, my favorite part of the entire thing. Can I please ask, um, Travis, I'm going to give you, the, uh, give you the luxury. I want your tweet summary of why 1917 takes it in a battle versus Dunkirk. Uh, it's, uh, 1917 is Gallipoli for Generation Xbox. Thank you, Brendan. That's my whole thing. Brendan, can I have your tweet uh, summary of Dunkirk before my adjudication, your final argument? Dunkirk is a purposeful deconstruction of the moral ambiguity of a war zone, and 1917 is empty and uh, even boring, and it has no sense of what it's trying to say. He's on me. I'm on him. Well, gentlemen, uh, this has been the first and uh, an absolutely terrific duel of takes, and I really appreciate both of your arguments here, and I guess it's time for my adjudication. Look, um, uh, I I appreciate some of the phenomenal topics we discussed here. One of them really is, you know, what is the purpose of a war film? I think we've got to ask ourselves that. And for each generation, it's the weird sort of reflection and musing um, of what's happening in our, you know, socio-political climate and how that reflects in our war films. And so that's what's always fascinating. That's why you can, you know, drop a pin in something like Apocalypse Now and then drop a pin in The Thin Red Line and drop a pin in Saving Private Ryan and see what people are trying to say or what they want to say or what they wish they are or what's aspirational or what is. And so it's been really cool to hear you listen. But you know what? Sam Mendes' best films in the recent years have been aping Chris Nolan so bad that (laughs) there's just really nothing that is forgivable about 1917. He is gimmickifying Dunkirk to the level that it's actually egregious. I mean, it, it, you know, he made Skyfall the best James Bond movie, which is essentially the dark Knight. Everyone shut up, go watch it again. I'm a fan of it, but I'm also the guy whose name used to be at Blake is Batman on Twitter. So just stop your arguments. And also he's aping the dark Knight, which is aping heat. So you can all shut up. Um, the next thing is I'm really looking forward to Sam Mendes' next space movie uh, Into Space and also um, his spy movie Exception um, because really this guy is just taking a fucking tracing pad to Chris Nolan so look Travis whilst commendable and uh, and comparisons towards Lenny Riefenstahl's work and Sam Mendes here um, was unbelievable I'm siding with Brendan the take is over this is my judgement Dunkirk wins Dunkirk wins and look uh, in 10 years time we're not going to be thinking about this one take Nolan ripoff. We are going to, in my mind, however, be talking about Dunkirk. Ladies and gentlemen, my two fantastic master debaters and arguers, Brendan Hodges and Travis Johnson. Legends, thank you so much for being a part of the take. Yeah, absolutely. Very happy to be here. Thank you, man. Yeah, thank you. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Take. My name is Blake Howard. If you want to follow me, it's at One Blake Minute on Twitter. You can follow my amazing guests at Movie Maz for Maria Lewis, at Celluloid Whiskey for Travis Johnson, and at Metaplex Movies for Brendan Hodges. Thank you, all three of my amazing guests, for being a part of the show. Thank you guys all for listening. Um, if you want to check out anything about the site, um, it's flicks.com.au. You can find The Take in all of our episodes, including our season of Mandalorian uh, recaps there with Lindsay Romaine, which is at Lindsay Romaine on Twitter, at Flix Australia, for everything you need to know about the site on Twitter too. But that's been another episode of The Take. We'll catch you next week. See you soon. This podcast is brought to you by flix.com.au, Australia's number one movie and cinema site.